Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz drummer Matt Slocum. This promising young jazz force was born in St. Paul, Minnesota and raised in western Wisconsin. He just released 2016's Trio Pacific Volume 1 and he hopes there's more later. It's another evolutionary step in his jazz walk that started with him digging the recordings of both Max Roach and Philly Joe Jones. From there, he went on to the University of Southern California to study with the legendary Peter Erskine before arriving to his current home of New York City. There is a lot going on in his world, so take a listen and dig this interview, my friends. How you doing? Everything's cool. Right on. Thank you for taking some time out to talk to me today. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. And then right up front, I want to dispel anybody out there that, that listens to this to make sure that you are the Matt, that it's the jazz drummer, not the keyboardist for Sixpence None the Richer. Indeed. How many times do people bring it up to you? Is it a common thing? It's more like my friends just messing with me, like they're at some festival and they'll text me like, like the keyboard Matt Slocum is playing or something like that. But, <laughs> okay. yeah, one time I was dating this girl in college and she asked me if I had some kind of like rocker alter ego. But um, <laughs> other than that, it's, it's not too common. Right on. Well, I'm going to go ahead and get into the life of Matt as the jazz drummer. I'm going to begin with the newest album, which is a great listen, Trio Pacific Volume 1. I really dig the painting on there by uh, uh, Julika Lackner. Yeah, she's amazing. Her yeah. brother is, is actually a jazz musician. He was in New York for a while. I think he's, I know he's in Europe. He might be in Berlin. I think she's originally from Berlin, but she lives in Los Angeles now. Well, let's get into the inner workings and the audio part of this album and talk to me about making this and how you feel about it now that it's actually out physically in people's hands. It'll be officially out early October. We recorded it in the beginning of March. So as far as length of time between recording and release, I'm sort of okay with that. It's it's quicker than... Sometimes it has been recently with jazz recordings. A lot of times guys will, and myself included, you'll do the recording and it can take like a year or more for it to actually get released. It's still somewhat fresh, so I'm happy about it coming out in the fall rather than in a year later or something like that. The group is still pretty new. I knew both the saxophonist Dana Stevens and the guitarist Steve Cardenas for quite a while, and I've gigged with each of them in as a sideman in different groups, and Dana's played on a few of my past records. The bassist, Massimo Bilicati, we were going to do a trio gig with Dana, Massimo, and me. Massimo had to bail, and uh, I thought of getting Steve, the guitarist, to do the gig, and I loved the way that uh, he and Dana played together, so that was sort of the impetus to record this group. Let's depart now and go into the past. You were born in St. Paul, Minnesota, raised in western Wisconsin. So my question is, how did you get to a point where you loved music and got into jazz? Well, first off, we had great music in our schools. I wouldn't say that our our middle school jazz band was, was necessarily jazz per se. Like I remember playing Louie Louie and stuff like that. There's a great jazz camp maybe an hour away from where I grew up that's called Shell Lake Jazz Camp. 
uh, Jeffrey Kieser's father, Ron Kieser, taught there. So I was able to go there and study with him and a lot of great teachers during the summers. Right around the time when I got into high school, because I was already into playing drums and playing percussion, what really got me interested in jazz was having a great teacher in Minneapolis uh, whose name was Phil Hay. He studied with Ed Blackwell. I, I absorbed as much as I could at that time, but you know, I reported all the lessons and stuff. And listening back to that, when I got more serious into practicing in college and stuff, that was really helpful for me. But Phil was definitely the guy who set me straight. The first time I met him, I went to one of his gigs at uh, Dakota, the old Dakota in St. Paul. So he took a sheet of staff paper and wrote out like 50 recordings and said, get all these and then call me and we'll talk about doing a lesson. So you start out on the piano, though, and then you move to drums. Why Why did that migration happen? Why didn't the piano stick, and why are, is that your principal instrument now? Well, we had to play piano for two years if you wanted to join the percussion section at school. I, I like piano, and I wish that I could play it on gigs and stuff like that, but it's really, for me at this point, it's just to compose on. Even then, it was kind of a means to an end. I I played it because I knew I wanted to do percussion, and it was a requirement. So let me ask you this. When you were growing up, the recordings of Max Roach and Philly Joe Jones were obviously big influences, but was there a specific album that you listened to that just was like, wow, that's crazy? Yeah. I mean, the ones that stuck with me just probably because, well, A, they're amazing, and B, they were the first ones that I had. With Max, there'd be two, Clifford Brown and Max Roach, Study and Brown. I love that record. Uh, and then later I got into more of like the live stuff with that group. But that was the first one I had with that group. And I, I mean, Max's soloing just kind of seemed to have no precedent. I mean, definitely at that time, because I had no listening history. But even now, it, his language and his tuning, that, that was really, really interesting to me. And the first record that I had with Philly Joe was Cooking with the Miles Davis Quintet. For me, that I, I liked that. Obviously, his, his soloing is great on there, too. But it was more um, from a comping, time feel, supportive standpoint. I, I really dug Max from the drum soloing perspective. And then Philly Joe, I, I loved his time feel. I loved the comping and how he hooked up with the rhythm section. So at this point in your life, when you look back, when did you decide that music was going to be what you were going to grow up to be? I mean, did you have other dreams growing up, or was music kind of the conclusion that you wanted to come to for your life? Well, when I went to college, I went to study in California at USC. I had signed up, I was going to do a double major in music and psychology because I was still kind of undecided. I I knew I liked playing drums, and but my mom and my dad, who were totally supportive, but they would be like, you know, <laughs> let's be real, you want to maybe have other options. Just when I got to school, I realized that I didn't really want to do a double major. I, I just wanted to practice and just focus on music. So when you get to the University of Southern California, you hook up with the great Peter Erskine, who just, his history is, it would take forever to go through all of it. That had to be, would that have been a moment for you, being with him, that kind of tipped you to say, yeah, this is it, I want to get the jazz? Yeah, yeah, that was that was huge. And studying with him made all the stuff that I had worked on with Phil and that maybe I hadn't fully absorbed yet, it made all that make sense, too. I, I can't say enough good things about Peter, both 
obviously as a performer, but also as an educator. You spend three years in California after you graduate before you arrive in New York City. What happened? What transpired professionally on the world stage, which is, of course, one of the biggest education realms that a musician can go to? What happened there before you went to New York? How did you get your chops going? Basically, I I didn't really have a formal plan when I got out of school. I was playing, at that time, my main gig was with the vocalist Sarah Gazarek. My best friend is bassist, Eric Curtis, and uh, another great friend of mine, pianist, Josh Nelson. That was the group. We were doing some touring, and then um, I was just trying to practice a lot. I didn't feel that I was ready to move to New York yet. I think it was kind of good that I stayed in Los Angeles because I got to play, especially playing like I would sub. I took some lessons with Joe LaBarber after I got out of college. Joe LaBarber, for, I guess a lot of people are familiar with him, but for people who aren't, he's best known for his work with Bill Evans' trio. He's an amazing uh, brush player and an amazing drummer overall. And then I would sub for him when he couldn't make gigs with uh, pianist Bill Cunliffe's trio. And I, I really learned a lot just doing some gigs with Bill, also playing with uh, my friend Josh Nelson's piano trio. That's how I met Dana, the saxophonist for this recording. We were doing a, a session with Josh and Dana, recorded on a couple of the tunes with the trio. So when you get to New York in 2007, you play, since then you played at uh, Yoshi's, Lincoln Center, Blue Note. I mean, what, what, what was, what's it like the first time you realize you are walking into these sacred jazz institutions and performing on those stages? It, it sort of depends. For me, it's more, I guess we had done, like, I had played at Blue Note before moving here with Sarah, and we had done some venues. Actually, we played, I think, at Yoshi's once with her before even moving here, too. But for me, it was it. it's more like the musicians that you're playing with. So, I don't know. The venue, too, like, like I haven't played at the Village Vanguard yet. I would love to. That I could see that being, a, you know, it's just hollowed ground. Even, like, Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola, that's getting, that's one of my favorite places to play. Yeah, I remember playing there for the first time, and that was really inspiring. I don't know that I, I didn't. I don't feel as nervous, like in terms of at the time. I didn't feel as nervous in terms of like, oh, it's this venue, whatever. As as much as like if I was playing with you know an older musician for the first time or something like that, I didn't want to mess up the gig or something like that, even if it was at a small venue. You know, then I then I would be like practicing the charts all the time before that. Well, that's that's a good lead into my next question. You know, you've been around a lot of musicians that have been around for a long, long time, like Gerald Clayton, um, you know, Aaron Goldberg, uh, Jaleel Shaw, Anthony Wilson. What do you learn from being around veterans and those that have all of that experience? Uh, there's a ton of things, but today, this morning, the first thing that comes to mind is just how relaxed that they all play. I'm, I'm actually going to go hear Gerald play tonight at the Vanguard. It should be a really interesting trio. Uh, piano, guitar, and drums with Lionel Luique and uh, Eric Harland. Every time I hear Gerald play, he's just he's just completely relaxed. Nothing's forced, just in the moment. And I think the same goes for anyone who's really doing this at a high level and like a really honest level of improvising. 
So I, there, I could say a ton of things about it, like listening. I think the depth of listening is really what separates the really great players, you know, just how relaxed that they are while playing. And, and I think that facilitates the depth of listening too. Sure. You know, one, one offshoot off of what you just said there is I'm always interested just because I, I present music from the past and the present and kind of celebrate the entire spectrum of jazz. I'm always interested in the health and vitality of jazz in 2016 and talking from someone that watches live shows in Kansas City, there is a vitality, there is a resurgence, there is a definite health that is very high in the jazz world in Kansas City. And I hear and I feel like that's happening in New York. Take me to the Village Vanguard 2016. How is jazz today? In terms of the musicians, from an artistic standpoint, it's there's so much happening that it's it's amazing, you know? There's guys that I haven't even heard of yet who are, you know, moving to Brooklyn out of school, and they're just, they would blow our minds. And, and then hopefully eventually we'll hear of them and they'll be playing. But some of them we won't even, because I think from an audience side, I, I, I've only played in Kansas City once, and that that was great, but my impression is outside of New York and Europe, it's really pretty isolated in terms of places that present jazz in the U.S. Especially, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in all types of jazz and, and music, but uh, especially the stuff that I'm really into, you know, like this group with Gerald tonight, that that might not fly on, uh, you know, some straight-ahead jazz groups or something like that. From the artist level, I'm hearing amazing things being created and played, and I feel that the art form is definitely moving forward in a lot of different directions to the point where, and this has been going on for a while, but it's it's kind of like there's some debate as to what is actually jazz and where are we drawing these lines and is jazz even the appropriate word to use for, you know, improvised music that's, based on um, it's really coming out of black American music, you know? Yeah, absolutely. When you get on stage, you know, musicians always have conversations. When you hop on stage, what kind of conversation do you typically want to have? I think it completely depends on the group and especially the rhythm section. People talk about the rhythm section in terms of a masculine rhythm section or a more feminine rhythm section where there's more interaction. So for me, it completely depends on the players that I'm working with. Because if I'm in a sideman role, I, obviously you want to, every gig you show up to where you're improvising, et cetera, uh, you're playing and it's your own voice, but you need to serve the music. You need to work within whatever group it is. If it's my own group, like, for instance, this trio with Dana and Steve, I, I just want it to be a collective dialogue with that group. Now, if it's a more straight-ahead gig and it's just, let's say it's like an old-school kind of sax player or something like that, I'm going to play a lot differently. Hopefully the same sense of groove and same sense of swing is there underlying the music, whether or not it's stated or implied. So you've talked about teachers, especially with Peter Erskine. I mean, that's one of the better teachers, best teachers out there. What what advice have you gotten from your teachers that really sticks? Like, before you get ready to play a gig or record, is there something someone told you that just hits you every time? 
one thing that really helped me is just hearing Peter tell stories about when he was coming up, you know, playing with Stan Kenton, playing with Weather Report or whatever. I, I think at one point he even did a, this recording session with Chet Baker, and I remember him telling me about that session. His thing was just, look, you've just got to go for it. You can't worry about it because any hesitation or uncertainty in this music is like paralysis, you know? It, it's just, it sucks all the creative energy and flow out of it. So you jump in and you hope for the best and you play relaxed and you keep your ears open. And also, <laughs> another thing, he's big into all of his lessons. He's got a great setup at his studio, so he's got these drummerless tracks and he'll record you with them. And then he's actually already recorded on them, so then you'll listen back with him playing them and you get all these ideas. And for me, that was really helpful, too, because he's big on recording and then listening back. So I try to, not as much now, but still some, record gigs, record rehearsals, and then listen back. So you're not thinking about it at the time, but then later you can kind of go back like a sports player would do and kind of review the tape. Absolutely. That's great. So over all the years that you've played, you've played at a lot of, on a lot of stages. I'm going to kind of go down a nostalgic route and get into kind of a jazz DeLorean here. I know you, you dig Max Roach and Philly Joe Jones and, and many other musicians. If you could go back in time and see a gig live, where would you want to go? Who would you want to see? I only get one gig live? Well, now you can pick a few. <laughs> oh, I can pick a few. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. I was just listening to Money Jungle the other day with Duke Ellington, Charles Mingus, and Max Roach, and I would have been really interested to just kind of be invisible and hang out in the room during that session, just because I've, I've not only musically, but heard so many stories about that. I, I would have loved to be there to hear some of the early gigs uh, with Kenny Clark playing, too, actually. Maybe hang out and hear a gig where, I don't know, other guys are sitting in. It's try to hear something like with Big Sid Catlett there, or even just a conversation with him and Max, something like that. And I never got to hear Max Roach live, so that would be that would be up there, too. So let me ask you a general question. Why do you love jazz? I, I mean, that's like it's like asking somebody like, why do you love your wife or something? <laughs> you know, I could, right. I could go. I love the creative spark and the creative spirit, and for me, I really love the interaction too, especially with like this new group with Dana and Steve. That's something that really appeals to me. I, I did a lot of listening um, to Bill Evans' trio and groups like that, where it's a less traditional role for the drums and rhythm section and that really appeals to me the conversational aspect of improvisation what's one of the nicest things that you remember a fan has said to you i think the nicest thing that a fan has ever said to me was um shelly mann's widow came to a gig when we were playing in los angeles she told me that the playing reminded her of shelly but in my own way I, I think that's the nicest thing that anybody's ever said to me. I mean, I haven't studied Shelley's playing as much as Max or Philly Joe, and obviously you want to have your own voice and not sound like a clone, but it just... I, I thought it was sweet that she said something like that. That's very cool. 
in 10 years we hook up and talk again. What are you going to want to tell me has happened? What are you looking forward to? Well, it would be cool to play the Vanguard before then. But, <laughs> Certainly. Um, yeah, definitely. And I definitely um, I want to record more with this Trio Pacific with Dana and Steve. So in 10 years, I'd definitely like to have, let's say, this is volume one, so maybe up through volume four. There's another piano trio project different from my from the group that I recorded with on my last three records that I want to document. And I've been writing a lot of music for multiple drum sets and maybe percussion too. So I'm interested in documenting that. That would be big on the list. Of course, there's always like, uh, I'd love to like do a gig with Keith Jarrett or something like that. But um, I, I guess you never know. But um, something like that would be very, very cool. Final question for you here. Everybody has a version of who you are, your fans, your family, your friends, business contacts. But when you wake up and face the world every day, who do you think you are? Tough one. Tough one. Yeah. The, the hardest one for last. The test for um, last. <laughs> I don't know that I can explain it. I can say that definitely this, from a musical standpoint, this last recording feels the closest to who I am and I'm, and we're still carving that out. That's kind of the goal of this music is figuring out what it is. <laughs> Erskine told me one time, it's really simple. You figure out what you want to hear and you just play that. But that's also kind of the hardest thing to do, you know, eliminating what you don't want and figuring out what you do want to hone in on. I Honestly, I would take... Uh, Bill Evans said that he would rather have... Um, I think he used the term layman, but... You know, let's just say somebody who's a non-musician, you know, listening to his music and and giving feedback or whatever. Like he takes their uh, impression more seriously than that of a musician because the musician is preoccupied with all his own training and, and stuff like that. So musically, it's whatever you hear. I, I know how I like to play, um, and I'm, there's things that I'm still working towards. And I know this is sort of <laughs> dodging your question, but it, it is no. it is what it is to the listener. Yeah. And that could be different. But hopefully it's something that I was becoming increasingly personal. And um, if somebody, you know, puts on the record, it's it's something that's like, okay, I can hear there's things that he's doing. And that's that's Matt. That's, that's how he plays and, and his sound. That's a great answer. And the beauty of this question is that it's always answered differently. Matt, thank you for taking some time out. Good luck with this new album. It's a great listen, and I appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Joe. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Matt for his music and all those stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or you can visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Jazz.